Welcome to episode 100, Healing Invisible Wounds, Working Through Past Sexual Trauma in Relationships, featuring Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman. For more information about the free CE credit associated with this interview, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com. Make sure to subscribe now to our podcast by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Julie Gottman while we talk about uh, the relational impact of past sexual trauma. Post-production note, this interview contains discussion about sexual trauma and acts of sexual violence. All vignettes shared herein are either using fictitious individuals or with written permission by the involved parties. Dr. Gottman is a licensed clinical psychologist and the co-founder and president of the Gottman Institute. She is a highly respected psychologist and she is sought internationally uh, as a presenter for um, topics ranging from marriage to sexual harassment and rape, domestic violence, gay and lesbian adoption, same-sex marriage, and parenting issues. Uh, Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's my pleasure, Beth. Thanks so much. So why don't we start by talking about your background and what you've learned that can contribute to this conversation today about working with couples or individuals around the topic of past sexual trauma? Okay. Well, um, it goes way back, actually. Um, My mother happened to be someone who was incested by her father, a very violent man. Uh, She was probably also sexually abused by people in a boarding house when her mother took her out of the home for a year to try and leave uh, her father, which wasn't successful. Uh, And so I grew up living with the effects of sexual abuse uh, all around me in the family. And fortunately, uh, my father was a very gentle and kind man who uh, really helped her to recover. And for all I know, I think their relationship was quite healthy in the bedroom and out, uh, given uh, there were three children and uh, they still had a very romantic and physical affectionate relationship uh, and sexual as far as my mom shared with me. Uh, But I could also see the effects on her psychology in general. And later on in uh, graduate school, uh, I became really interested in sexual abuse. Uh, I had a couple of very, very negative experiences in late adolescence sexually uh, that included rape. And so I understood now, not only from family life, but from the inside out, what it meant to be sexually abused. And so um, I developed a fairly keen interest in wanting to work with both women and men, uh, regardless of their sexual orientation, or at times uh, transgender people uh, who had some kind of negative sexual history. Uh, In addition, during graduate school, uh, one of my internships was at University of Cal San Diego, uh, where I was working 20 hours a week in the counseling center. And uh, together with another uh, senior consultant in that counseling department, uh, we created 
um, a the first anti-sexual harassment policy for uh, UCSD students, and there was a lot of it, believe me, as I'm afraid there is today as well. Uh, in addition, I um, found a supervisor in graduate school who helped me when I started a private practice as a psychological assistant in graduate school. And she had been the co-author as a graduate student herself with the first uh, woman, uh, Judith Herman, to write a book on father-daughter incest. Actually, the first individual, I shouldn't say just woman, the first individual to write uh, a book on father-daughter incest in 1970. Uh, and Lisa Hirschman was a fabulous supervisor, clinical psychologist in San Diego. And uh, I worked with her for two years, um, trying to develop some skill uh, in working with people who had survived sexual abuse. Uh, later, after graduate school, I moved to Seattle, uh, where I met John, and I tried very hard uh, to keep a, an autonomous, separate uh, field from his in terms of doing private practice, working with individuals, doing a lot of PTSD and sexual abuse work, as well as working with severely depressed folks, people who were suffering from features of personality disorders and so on. But lo and behold, you know, what was interesting is that I found that a lot of the people I was working with who had prior diagnoses of, say, borderline personality disorder actually didn't have borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. They actually had very severe PTSD. And when they worked very hard on their PTSD, which often related to early sexual abuse experience, uh, they changed so dramatically that they never really fit the diagnoses of different personality disorders. So, you know, what I saw is that um, those two, PTSD and personality disorder categories, were really getting merged together and confused. And people were not looking for sexual abuse in the people that they were working with. Uh, which was very disturbing to me. Um, for example, I had one case of uh, just a magnificent woman who had grown up uh, on the East Coast, very upper class. Uh, she'd been diagnosed with anorexia at 19, then uh, schizophrenia. Um, she had 52 shock treatments, uh, in various hospitals. She grew up in a very upper-class home. And uh, after she moved to the West Coast, she became alcoholic. She was alcoholic for about 15 years. And then she came to see me. And, um, you know, she was one of those clients, Beth. I'm sure you've felt this at times, and your listeners have too, where you completely synchronize with a client. You feel so in tune with them that you can just almost 
Uh, now, I won't say read their thoughts. It's way too arrogant. But <laughs> you have some sense of really what's going on deep inside them. And just scraping the surface a little bit, lo and behold, she had had severe sexual abuse uh, by her father and an older brother uh, that nobody had ever asked for. And this woman was 54 years old. So she'd been treated for 35 years and nobody had asked whether she'd been sexually abused, which just blew my mind. And in five years of treatment, she cleared from her uh, alcoholism. She definitely cleared in the first year of that. She worked hard on the sexual abuse. She got stronger and stronger. She ended up taking herself back to school, getting a master's degree in counseling, uh, and uh, eventually using her inherited money to open up a treatment center in another part of the country uh, for depressed women. So uh one can see, as all of your listeners know, that sexual abuse is rampant in this country. And I uh, really, really have focused on treating sexual abuse as well as other types of PTSD, both individually and in couples, uh, for, gosh, since 19... 80 or so, whatever that is, almost 40 years. Um, in addition, um, John and I merged our brains together. And at the ripe old age of me being 68 and John 77, we now say that between the two brains that we have, we now have one whole brain. So um, we started doing uh, couples work together and forming our interventions and so on 25 years ago. Uh, and then in about 2003, um, we were invited to create a curriculum for couples on welfare. Uh, to These were unmarried couples uh, trying to help those couples to stay together when they were having their first child. And... You know, as you as you can imagine, um, lots of people who are suffering from the stresses of poverty have had terrible PTSD, and some of that, of course, includes sexual abuse too. So, in the curriculum that we developed for couples in poverty, that was uh, first uh, studied in a research study with three thousand couples. We included the treatment of trauma and old, as we called it, emotional wounds um, as a part of that treatment program, uh, which proved to be successful, especially for people uh, of color who were either heterosexual or lesbian or gay. Uh, and then later... Um, Let's see, I guess about four years ago, three years ago, uh, we created a clinical training program 
uh, that's online. It's an online workshop that's called Treating Affairs and Trauma, which again specializes in treatment of PTSD. And of course, some of that includes uh, individuals who've been sexually abused uh, in a couple's context. So in a very long thumbnail sketch, <laughs> that's uh, the background of my work with people who've been sexually abused. Thank you for sharing not only how you acquired the knowledge you have and use it clinically, but also what the topic means to you. I know for me and for a lot of listeners, um, we've been personally affected by sexual violence and we see it all too commonly in our loved ones and in the news and in our clients and want to do what we can to support people in healing and moving forward after these horrible experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. So, when it comes to kind of the relational context of sexual trauma, what's some of the research that you found or themes that really jumped out at you when you were working with and interviewing various couples where one or both partners had a sexual trauma history? Um, well, you know, we would often see uh, a similar thing, which was a lot of confusion. Um either in gay and lesbian relationships or heterosexual relationships, we would see the partner of the person who'd been sexually abused be very confused by uh, what would happen oftentimes during some kind of erotic activity. If, for example, the non-abused partner touched the abuse partner in a particular way, that abuse partner would either completely shut down and go into a frozen state or uh, might do something uh, much more poignant like curling up into a ball, beginning to cry, and then being unable to stop crying. And the partner wouldn't know what the heck was going on. That was one thing that we saw. Um, another was uh, that uh, uh, lots of things, things like the partner who had been abused would always want to sit with their back to a wall in a restaurant, for example, so that they could oversee the room, uh, thereby being able to anticipate if somebody was coming up behind them. Uh, you know, there'd be these little signs <clears throat> that uh, the person was being hypervigilant uh, and quite afraid of somebody coming up uh, in an unsuspected manner. Um, also, uh, affection would be something that would be very... Um, hot and cold. There would be times when the individual who'd been abused could be very, very uh, sexual, erotic, sensual with their partner, but other times when, uh, let's say they watched a television show the night before that contained uh, references to sexual abuse, the person the next day uh, would stay 20 feet away from their partner, never letting their partner get any closer than that. So, you know, there were lots of examples of the ways that hypervigilance would manifest from the sexual abuse 
into the relationship. Um, another common one uh, was when, uh, and this I saw all the time, it was almost universal, uh, if there was incest, what one might see is that during the courtship stage in the relationship before commitment or marriage, uh, there would be plenty of erotic activity. In other words, the abused person could compartmentalize the sexual abuse that had occurred in the family uh, in the back corner of the closet and with their partner who was not yet a family member, they could be perfectly uh, sensual, open, uh, sexually interested, desirous of erotic activity. But the minute they crossed that marriage line or commitment line, something happened inside them that confused and bewildered them, that is the abused partner, and everything would shut down. They wouldn't want to have sex. They wouldn't want to be touched. They wouldn't want to have sensuality. They wouldn't have any kind of erotic activity, and the both of them would be confused by that, not understanding what the heck was going on. Well, the reality was that uh, once that non-abused partner became, uh, in essence, a, a family member, it then crossed the barrier inside that closeted mind into abuse territory and the abuse came back up again. It may, it may not have come up as images or thoughts or actual memories, but it would come up in body memory. It would come up in uh, pelvic pain, for example. It would come up in the need to flee when the other partner entered the room. It would come up uh, in wanting to change clothes in a dark closet with the door shut rather than changing clothes in front of the other partner, not wanting to go into the bathroom when the other partner was around and so on. So everything would change when they crossed that line. That's the kind of thing that we really, uh, that were remarkable signs of a history of sexual abuse in a relationship. It sounds like it was much more far-reaching than just the bedroom. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, one couple that I had, um, the woman had been very, 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 very sadistically, horrifically abused by a grandfather he had been active during World War II in Germany. Uh, turned out he'd been a Nazi commandante. Uh, he was an extremely sadistic individual. And when his uh, when he immigrated to the United States, um, he uh, brought his wife. They had this uh, person, my patient's uh, father. The father. Uh, may have been sexually abused, I'm not sure, uh, but uh, this grandfather lived on the farm where uh, 
his son and daughter-in-law, and then their child, their single child, lived as well. And this woman came into therapy with me um, individually first and had many, many dreams of being in a barn, going up the stairs of the barn. And she couldn't remember. Um, she knew her grandfather lived up there. And at this time, he finally died. And she was now about 30 years old herself. Her parents were still living. But uh, she couldn't remember what was at the top of the stairs. So she knew her grandfather lived up there. And I had her draw a picture of uh, what was the layout of that room up there. And she drew everything but a bed. I pointed that out. And she curled up into fetal position on the couch and began sobbing. And thereafter came um, information that her grandfather had sexually abused her. She told me with some amount of terrible shame that she had a compulsive uh, behavior in which she went into a fugue state. Uh, she, I, I won't repeat exactly what she did for some members of your audience because it's, it's graphic and horrible, but she would deliver terrible pain to herself that duplicated the kind of pain she had during the sexual abuse with her grandfather. Uh, and, uh, and then she would touch herself and have an orgasm. Uh, and this woman was a, a classic example of having been quite open sexually and erotic with her uh, partner before marriage. And right after marriage, everything stopped and she hadn't had sex uh, since she married seven years earlier. In fact, she could not stand any closer than about 20 five yards from her husband. Couldn't get near him. So she would never be in the same room with him. She would be in the garden. If he was there, she'd walk 25 yards or so away. When they went on hikes, for example, she would have to be a quarter of a mile uh, either ahead of him or behind him so that he didn't have a chance to pick up. Uh, and catch up with her. And so the great thing about this couple is that they worked so incredibly hard. So first I worked with her for two years and then with the couple for two years. And by the end of that time, they had resumed a relatively normal uh, erotic relationship. And it took everything uh, for them to get there. She was a woman of incredible courage and bravery. He was a man of deep love and compassion and uh, patience, needless to say. Um, and they made it work, but it was very, very difficult for both of them. In that vignette, you talk about how she kind of had these repressed memories and then also how it was affecting her in the here and now with her partner and keeping so much physical space between him. 
when you first started working with either individual or couple, how did you talk about those challenges in a way to help establish safety? Um, well, in terms of establishing safety, first of all, um, I would, in in our assessment for couples, we always do an individual session as part of our assessment process. And you never, never, never do couples therapy in our method unless you have done assessment. That's just incredibly important. And in the individual session, um, I... For this woman, of course, I had already done work with her for two years individually, and she wouldn't see any other couple therapist but me at the time. So I agreed to do both of them. But what I said to her, first of all, given I'd done individual work with her already, was if there is a time when you are uncomfortable with perhaps my giving a lot of attention to your partner, not enough to you, or I've said something that misrepresents you, would you be comfortable coming forward and saying so to me in the session itself, the couple session, because I do not want to do anything that hurts you, alienates you, upsets you, uh, on behalf of one person, but not the other. So please, you know, would you be willing to come forward and talk to me about that? And she said, yes. Um, and that did happen a couple of times. Uh, in addition, I asked her in our individual assessment piece for the couple work, um, is there anything that you do not want your husband to know? Because uh, it is crucial that we not reenact the abuse in your relationship by uh, crashing through boundaries that you consider uh, sacred to you. So what is it that you want me to omit from this work uh, in order to protect your safety? And she said she did not want her husband to know about her compulsive rituals, which by now had stopped from her individual work that she'd done earlier. Uh, and I agreed to not share that piece with him and uh, never did. So it's very, very important to get a sense from your client individually first who has been abused. Uh, what boundaries they want to keep in mind and protect. And, of course, uh, some people uh, who are just jumping into couples work without having done individual work with a therapist, um, or anyone for that matter, may not have any sense of what boundaries they want to protect and which ones are okay to permeate. And so one has to be very, very careful and give uh, the client uh, every opportunity to say, no, I don't want to talk about that. And to raise topics having to do especially with physical intimacy or touch in such a generalized way that nothing is revealed and the person 
uh, at the same time, who's been abused, knows that you may be approaching a topic that's uncomfortable for them, but you haven't specified anything. And thus, uh, in that kind of early phase of bringing up something, they can uh, say, you know, I'd rather not talk about that. And you encourage them to do that from the very beginning of therapy if they're uncomfortable. Thank you for kind of breaking that down and the importance of establishing what I call a sacred space, a place that can be safe and you're allowing the client to lead the way in a way that's comfortable and at their own pace. Mm-hmm. When you're working with somebody individually and you as a provider start to think, hey, maybe bringing in that partner might be a good idea. How do you personally decide when to bring up that topic? What are some ground rules that you basically need to have established to know with that individual that it may be safe to now transition into the couple space and bring that person into that sacred space? Mm. You know, Beth, that's a really wonderful, wonderful question. Um, It's actually not that difficult to discern the right time uh, to bring in a partner. Uh, one can at least suggest doing so when the person that you're seeing, the individual that you're seeing who's been abused, um, keeps referencing the relationship, keeps referencing what uh, their partner is doing that's making them uncomfortable. And uh, the way one brings that up is very important too. So uh, the way I will do it is to say to somebody, let's say the person's name is, is uh, I don't know, Sheree. Uh, Sheree, um, I'm hearing you bring up uh, your partner quite a bit and how when she comes towards you from behind Cherie, you get extremely upset and turn around and often will say something sharply to uh, your partner. How would you feel about bringing in your partner for just one session to help the two of you negotiate how she can help you feel more safe in your own home by doing such things, for example, as not coming up behind you and then touching you. What we might want to do, Cherie, is to just talk about a variety of ways that you're feeling unsafe. And then either you or I can share with your partner those ways, not as a criticism of your partner or any kind of put down, but as information that can help her to help you feel safer in your own home so that she can build um, a better trusting connection with you. How would you feel? It sounds like you really invite the client into the conversation about whether or not to invite the partner. So let's imagine that Cherie's partner has come in for that session. How do you start? What are some interventions you use? You know, knowing this is all specific to each individual case, but what are some things that you found to be particularly impactful if you're working with a couple for a really limited amount of time on a very specific issue like this one? 
Okay. So um, let's say I've been working with Cherie uh, for a while. She's worked through some of her sexual abuse. Of course, this is not absolutely crucial. You can also begin with a couple right from the get-go working uh, on their relationship rather than the individual first. But in this case, um, let's say we've already done some work. We've had a session or two where Cherie has composed a list for herself of the ways that um, she feels unsafe. And in particular, what would help her to feel safer. So she's taken each one of the specific ways her partner, let's call her partner, uh, let's see, let's call her partner Casey. So Casey has uh, inadvertently triggered some of Cherie's PTSD around Cherie's sexual abuse. So we flip those negative ways that Casey may have triggered the PTSD into what would be a better way for Casey to handle those particular moments in the home. Then Casey comes into the session. I say to Casey, you know, I do a little bit of trust building first. I talk to her about um, uh, how she has really been trying hard in this relationship from what I've heard from Cherie to help Cherie feel safer. Uh, And let's say that Casey knows about the sexual abuse. So I ask Casey, would it be okay for Cherie to let you know some ways in which you can do positive things for her to help her feel safe? So Cherie might say, for example, And she doesn't say, rather than doing this, do that. She only puts out her positive need. Um, So Cherie might say something like, Casey, it would really help me if, if my back is to the door of a room and you come into the room. uh, Before you come up behind me, you call out, hi, Cherie. So I know that you're there. I can turn around and greet you face to face. That would really help me. So in that way, Cherie gives a positive example of what she needs. Um, Then I would check in with Casey and ask Casey, um, how how does that sound to you, Casey? Would that be something you feel comfortable doing? Now, if Casey, let's say, gets a little bit defensive, um, or says something like, well, I don't know why I have to do that. Uh, then what I would move into is what we call the Gottman Rappaport exercise. The Gottman Rappaport exercise or intervention is where uh, one individual uh, partner says what she needs in a positive, in the positive framework, what you do need rather than what you don't need. And it's very important to say what you do need and stop there rather than tagging on to it instead of doing this other thing that feels horrible to me because that will be heard much more loudly (laughs) than what 
the person said in the beginning in terms of what they did need. They will feel criticized as a listener. So you just have the speaker say something that they need in a positive way to uh, the other person. And in that way, the speaker is giving the listener a way to shine for them. Then you ask the listener to please summarize what they just heard the speaker say. So there you have a little bit of effective listening, right? Um, but so the listener then, if the listener gets defensive, um, then you explain the whole Gottman Rappaport process to them, where uh, the speaker says only what they do need which gives the listener a chance to shine for them. That's a really important thing. And a listener has a much easier time listening to a positive request as opposed to something negative that they're doing wrong because they'll often hear that as criticism, especially in a distressed relationship. So again, the speaker says something positive to the listener, and then the listener, you ask the listener to summarize what they heard the speaker just say, and if it's something that's fairly significant or deep, um, what you might follow up with <clears throat> after the listener has summarized what the speaker has said uh, is the listener asking the speaker the questions that are found in our Dream Within Conflict intervention. And our Dream Within Conflict intervention in the Gottman Method are big open-ended questions that really get to the heart of uh, why the speaker's uh, request or position on an issue is so very important to them. So the listener would then be given um, a page with the Dream Within Conflict questions. There are six of them listed on the page. And the listener would be asked to read aloud each question uh, to the speaker and then just listen to the speaker's answer. And the listener doesn't bring up their own point of view about each of these questions until they reverse roles and the listener is now the new speaker. So um, the questions are things like, are there any ethics, values, or guidelines that really uh, are a part of your position on this issue? Uh, is there any childhood history or background that influence your position on this issue? Uh, why is this so important to you? And, and so on. So you're getting down into the heart of why the speaker's uh, thoughts, requests, position on an issue uh, are so important to her or him. Uh, then they reverse roles. And uh, I could imagine in this case of Cherie and Casey, Casey saying something like, um, well, I don't want to have to call your name because I really love to surprise you. Um, and surprising people is something that I really find funny and silly and warm and affectionate. And that's how I was raised in my family. 
and so, uh, etc. Then it would be Cherie's uh, role as now the new listener to summarize what she heard said by Casey, and so on. So, you know, when you have something that's really in conflict, uh, you move from what we call the Gottman Rappaport, where there's an introduction to an issue um, and one person stating their position on an issue in a positive way or what their need is, what their request is. Uh, The listener summarizes it without bringing up their own point of view to make sure they've got it right. And then you can move, as a therapist, you can move them into what's called the dream within conflict exercise as part of our method in which the listener asks these deepening questions to really understand why the speaker's position is so important to them. Then they switch roles um, with the new listener uh, repeating back what they hear the new speaker saying, uh, but the new speaker having to present their own position in a positive way as well, not a negative way, not a defensive way. Uh, And then the new listener, again, using those dream within conflict questions um, and learning more about the new speaker's position on the issue. Then they can move into compromise. And we also have a special exercise for that called the two oval exercise. Um, So let me give you an example of. Um, oh, let's say a deeper issue that classically comes up with couples where there's been sexual abuse. And of course, it's do we have sex or do we not? And by sex, most people think that some form of genital stimulation or intercourse. Well, Uh, Typically, the individual who's been sexually abused, especially in the beginning of therapy, uh, wants no part of it. And uh, the other person who perhaps has a healthier sexual background may want to have some kind of erotic connection. So they have a difference on that issue. Um, Here's where doing trauma work is super important. Uh, around the sexual abuse. And you need permission, again, from the individual who has been abused uh, for them to delve into some of the things that happened to them as a child uh, or as an adult if that's when the sexual abuse occurred. So uh, let's take another case. Let's take a case of Um, let's say, Bill and Stephen. So let's say Bill has been sexually abused. So Bill doesn't want to have sex. It's really gotten triggered. Bill and Stephen, thank you, thank you, administration, for passing uh, DOMA. Um, They have married. And Stephen really wants to have a sexual relationship, but suddenly Bill is not interested. Okay, what now? So you begin with that Gottman-Rappaport exercise. Um, 
And Bill would likely say something like, I'm not comfortable uh, having sex right now, especially anal intercourse. I really don't want any part of it. You know what happened. And Stephen might summarize uh, what he's hearing Bill say. Um, then Stephen would go into the dream within conflict questions. And when it came to the one about background history, um, it might be uh, a story, you know, well, you know, I got sexually abused for five years. Okay, well, I might jump in, intervene a little bit around Bill's answering of that question and say, Bill, have you ever shared with Stephen what actually happened during that sexual abuse? No, I haven't. Would you like to? Well, no, not really. Well, let me just suggest something. I want to respect your boundaries here. The only reason I'm asking you that question is that Stephen doesn't really understand what happened, Bill, and he especially doesn't understand the emotions that you had, the terror that you had, perhaps, um, as many, many people do when they've been sexually abused. He may not understand what's getting triggered inside you uh, when he approaches you for sex. And my guess is that if you shared any part of it, you might uh, engender more compassion from Stephen about your discomfort with having intercourse, at least at this time in your relationship. So is there any part you might be willing to share without violating your own boundaries about privacy? I don't want you to, to do anything that is turning against yourself. What are your thoughts? And Bill might say something like, well, maybe I could tell him about one incident. I turn to Stephen and I say, Stephen, um, would you be okay listening to one example of what happened to Bill? Stephen would probably say something like, yeah, that would be great. I've been waiting to hear. Okay. And Bill, I want you to know that at any point you can stop if you wish. Just let us know. And then Bill would tell a story of what happened to him. He would tell that story to Stephen. And um, that's when everything shifts in the room. When the colors get sharper, the sounds become more clear. Everything shifts into hyper-focus. And you see the, the change on the face of Stephen as he's listening to Bill. And Bill may be telling the story with no affect, no emotions. 
but Stephen can really hear the pain beneath Bill's face. Stephen then begins to shift and his face grows softer. Stephen's face grows sadder and really um, showing some beautiful compassion and empathy for his partner, Bill. Then uh, I might turn to Stephen and say, what are you feeling right now? And Stephen might say something like, I'm feeling really deeply sad and really sorry for Bill. I might then turn to Bill and say, Bill, would you be okay with Stephen drawing a little closer to you and maybe putting his hand on your shoulder? Bill then has permission to say yes or no. And typically what often happens is that um, he might say yes, Stephen moves over to him, Stephen may put an, a hand on his shoulder very carefully, very tenderly, and then with that one touch that is soft and gentle, Bill breaks down and begins to sob. And Stephen may just hold on to his shoulder and maybe cry some too. And there's your connection with compassion, with witnessing on Stephen's part with an open heart and moving to draw closer to Bill, Bill accepting that closeness within the safety of the therapy. And there's the recreation, the rebirth of connection between the two of them. And where does it happen? Right in the heart of telling the trauma story. So the reality is that when one partner who's been abused feels safe enough to really share their story with their partner, then you have the seeds to create an entirely different relationship, a new relationship that's based on each of their mutual humanity. And it's, it's the most magnificent thing to see, the most magnificent thing to witness. And it's part of why I love this work so much. As you talk about it, I can hear how much you are consistently asking for consent. And I think it's so powerful in in the telling of these case examples to consider what the lived experience is like, not only for the person that's been through the abuse, but for the other partner and not knowing how to help, not knowing what to do, and I think feeling powerless or hopeless. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right, Beth. That's exactly right. So what we're really doing as a couple therapists there is you're helping the individual who's been abused to surface their trauma, then deepen their trauma story, and then rebuild connection with the partner that's based in compassion rather than anger and resentment. 
When working with an individual around kind of their relationship challenges relating to their history of sexual victimization, how do you approach that? Do you encourage them to do these kind of exercises at home with their partners? Or is it more individual work in exploring those relational dynamics? That's a great question, Beth. Um, When I'm working with an individual and the partner is still at home, I do not encourage uh, the individual to go home and try to do some couple exercises with their partner. The reason I don't is that um, the individual is often very fragile. I don't know the partner. I don't know how the partner is going to react. Uh, and uh, I don't know what's going on within the partner's point of view. So it's very important if you're going to do any kind of relational work that the partner be sitting in front of you with the individual's full consent uh, and safety. What do you do in the cases where that partner isn't open to attending therapy? Hmm. Um, If the individual is complaining about how their partner at home is responding to them, um, I will ask uh, the individual's permission to call up on the phone the partner uh, and talk to them about uh, coming into therapy just for one session. If they give me their consent, then I will call up that partner and say to the partner, you know, um, I understand that there is some distress in this relationship, and I'm sure that you're experiencing some of that too. And part of my doing this work uh, with your partner in the office is that I really don't have your perspective on what's going on. I can only take their perspective uh, into my point of view, but I have no idea of whether or not that matches your point of view. And my guess is that you probably have some very unique things that uh, you would want to add in terms of what's going on in the relationship. Um, Would you be willing to come for just one session to just give me your perspective on what's going on in the relationship? Would you be okay with that? I've never had somebody say no. Thank you for sharing that because I can imagine (laughs) being in that situation and not knowing how to address that. So thank you for presenting a way to to actually do it in real life. (laughs) Of course, that's right. You know, people are very aware of triangles, right? And they're very, you know, part of why they're afraid to come into therapy is if you've already been meeting with one individual, they think you're on that individual's side and they're they're afraid that they're going to get nailed if they come in to the therapy later on. So you flip that on its head in order to say, absolutely not. You know, I know that there's a missing piece here. There's a missing voice. I want to hear you. I want to hear your perspective. Your perspective counts. That's the message you're delivering. I can hear how powerful that 
can be for that person that is uneasy about coming into therapy or not sure how to support their partner. I imagine that there's quite a bit of psychoeducation that also goes on. I know I've experienced in the room with clients that have, you know, whether it's it's one explicit incident of sexual abuse or it's it's long term um, horrific sexual abuse. Sometimes not knowing what to expect, where it's like, oh, I do this weird thing, but it's just me, and it's like, oh, you know, let's let's talk about that thing, whatever it is, and here's some information. I think really to normalize. What are mm-hmm. some of the pieces of information that you pull on when either working with couples or individuals that have a history of sexual violence? Mm, great question again. Um, so uh, I ran therapy groups for uh, women who had been incested for about eight years. Uh, no, actually longer than that, about 15 years. Uh, one group ran for as long as eight years. And I kept hearing the same things from those people. And here's what I then inform somebody who just thinks, uh, you know, it was kind of a weird thing, but I don't have, you know... I'm not like anyone else. Well, uh, the reality that I will impart to that individual is one, they feel like it was their fault. Uh, They did something that created it. Two, um, they feel terrible, terrible shame about it. Three, they feel like people can see through them and see that uh they somehow had a horrible dirty sexual relationship with somebody and it was their fault so everybody can see who they are whether or not they've said that to others or not um four uh is that they feel like they're dirty inside they're contaminated um they never will lose the contamination from that sexual abuse within them. Uh, I had one client describe it as this giant blackness uh, within them that filled up the cavity within their own skin. Uh, It was a very sad graphic description. Uh, Another is that um, they feel like they don't they don't have the right to set boundaries they don't have the right to say no uh they never learned that they were supposed to have boundaries and could have boundaries and that it was right for them to have boundaries in any way shape or form not only around their body but around what they do for other people what people ask of them and so on um They may have had times when they were sexually promiscuous um, uh, and just had sex with everybody, and oftentimes they were doing so, but with uh, their bodies on the ground, maybe, or on a bed, but their soul on the ceiling looking down on what was going on for them. Um, and so on. I mean, there's so many things that people, both men and women, who've been sexually abused experience that are similar to each other. 
And what you really want to do in your education of an individual is to normalize what they went through and that they are not alone with it. So basically, you know, what you're saying to them is you are having very normal reactions to a very abnormal situation. You're not the one who's abnormal. The situation was abnormal and wrong. I think that kind of normalization can be so powerful. And I know with some of the clients I've worked with, even sometimes them seeing my face you know, seeing the sadness or whatever expression I'm showing while they might be talking about their stories, almost a surprise of like, oh, this is a thing, you know, like there's a reaction to this, or this was just normal in my family or at my college or whatever it was. And Uh the power of another person saying, here are some of the things that, that you might experience. And here are some of the things that you might expect from this, I think even can be very healing. Um, mm-hmm. I could certainly keep talking to you about this topic forever, and we are about out of time for today. So I, I want to ask you, where can people learn more about this particular issue? You know, working with individuals that have a history of sexual violence, um, what resources, in addition to, to your own, do you really recommend? Um, well, uh, father-daughter incest uh, for uh, incested uh, survivors, uh, written by Judith Herman, is fabulous. Um, there's a book called Lasting Effects of Childhood Sexual Abuse that is really good. Uh, Anne Ganley, who has written about domestic violence, uh, G-A-N-L-E-Y, includes in that some sexual violence uh, within uh a marriage or a domestic situation at home. Uh, her work is wonderful if you look at her papers. Um, and at www.gottman.com, which is our Gottman Institute web- website, um, you uh, can go to our what's called TAT, Treating Affairs and Trauma, uh, which is our online uh two-day workshop uh, no sorry three-day workshop actually that's all online uh, including films of my work with two couples um, uh, one in which there was sexual abuse Um, that is uh, a good kind of online learning tool for you uh, and finally, um, now let's see what else. Uh, um, our level one training uh, video, which is also online, includes work with uh, a couple called Paul and Chantel. And Chantel was horrifically sexually abused as a kid. And that does come up uh, in the therapy as it's demonstrated in that online learning uh, product. Uh, Let's see, and um, two books that I've written, um, The Marriage Clinic Casebook uh, talks about, I think I talk about a case there where a woman was sexually abused, and my other book, 
uh, 10 Principles for Doing Effective Couples Therapy, which is my latest book, came out last year, I think, or the year before, I forget. Uh, 10 Principles for Doing Effective Couples Therapy includes some work on sexual abuse as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Julie. I think your research, your work has been so instrumental, and I'm so grateful to have you here to share some of your expertise and your insight with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Well, it was my privilege, Beth, and I thank you. Let me just thank your audience um, for their embracing uh, this work because more and more of it is needed. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.